This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, any place. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. You're listening to The Happiness Formula. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. In our last episode... Barry taught us that the art of wisdom is not about following the rules, but about knowing when to break them. Today, he dives into incentives. Did your parents offer you money if you got good grades in school? Mine didn't. How about bonuses at work? You get those? Barry explains that these well-meaning incentives actually warp our decision-making, and that we should instead be motivated by what the right thing to do is. Let's get started. If you're not going to insist on more and more rules, then what's the alternative? The alternative is to find a clever system of incentives that will induce people to do the right thing. In other words, if we get the incentives right, people will do well when they do good. And there has to be some magic set of incentives that will get doctors to practice good medicine, lawyers to practice good law, teachers to be excellent teachers. And even if they're not interested in being good doctors, good lawyers, and good teachers, they will be rewarded by, for being good doctors, good lawyers, and good teachers. And so, whereas rules makes war on what you might call moral skill, the ability to use judgment well. What incentives do is they make war on moral will. And I'll try to explain what I mean by that. Let me start with an example. I think examples are good ways to learn general lessons. 
So in Israel, some time ago, 20 years ago maybe, there was a daycare center that was having a problem. The problem was that parents were coming late to pick up their children at the end of the day. And of course, the teachers couldn't leave the daycare center until all the children had been fetched. And the teachers were getting a little bit annoyed at having to wait for these inconsiderate parents to show up. So the director of the daycare center, no doubt having studied some economics, decided to introduce a set of fines. If you came more than 15 minutes late to pick up your child, you would pay the equivalent of a parking ticket. And he assumed that creating this cost, this negative incentive, would induce people to come on time. So what do you think happened? Day by day, week by week, with the system of fines in place, lateness kept going up. By the end of two months, lateness was twice as likely as it had been before the fines were introduced. In other words, the fines had done exactly the opposite of what they were intended to do. Why? Well, what the director of the daycare center eventually figured out is that he thought he was imposing a fine, but the parents thought he was introducing a price. In other words, what the parents took the fine to mean is that if you're willing to pay $30, you have permission to come late. You can buy an extra half hour of daycare by paying this $30 fine. So the article that reported this result was called A Fine is a Price. Now, of course, from the point of view of the director of the daycare center, it was meant to be a fine. It was a signal to people that they were behaving badly. But from the point of view of the parents, all it was was a ticket, a permission ticket to come late as long as you're willing to pay for it. And so lateness kept going up higher and higher and higher. And after two months, he abandoned this procedure and went back to the way things were. No fines, just encouraging parents to come on time. And what happened now is that lateness went up even more. Why? Well, it had become a better deal. You used to have to pay to come late. Now you can come late for free. So the, the deep point here is that before the fines were introduced, parents had a reason to come on time. It was their obligation to the staff of the daycare center. They didn't always honor that obligation, but they had a moral obligation to come on time. When you introduce fines, you essentially demoralize the behavior of the parents. It is no longer a question of what they owe to other people. It's no longer a question of what their responsibilities are to other people. It is now just a question of whether they're willing to pay the price. And once you've done that, it looks as though the moral dimensions of showing up on time are essentially permanently eliminated, so that eliminating the fines only increases lateness. 
And that's the example of the Israeli daycare center. I'll give you one other example. In uh, the late 1990s, Switzerland had to decide where to locate nuclear waste dumps. They had to go somewhere, and the question was where, and there was going to be a national vote on the siting of these nuclear waste dumps. Now, as you can imagine, nobody wanted the nuclear waste dumps in their neighborhood, in their community, but they had to go somewhere. The citizenry in Switzerland was extremely well informed prior to the vote. It was a topic of substantial debate and conversation. And a couple of uh, researchers went door to door and asked people, would you be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in your community? Now, what do you imagine is the percentage of people who would say yes if you conducted that survey in the United States? Would you be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in your community? I'm guessing that the percentage of people saying yes would be somewhere around zero. In Switzerland, 50% of people said yes. They would be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in their community. And so the researchers probed, um, do you think a nuclear waste dump will be dangerous? Uh, yeah, I think it's probably dangerous. Do you think nuclear waste dump will affect your property value? Oh, I'm sure it'll affect my property value. Well, then why are you willing to have a nuclear waste dump in your neighborhood? Well, it has to go somewhere, and I have responsibilities as a citizen. I hope it doesn't go here, but I can't, in good conscience, give you a reason why it shouldn't go here. 50% said yes. They knocked on other doors, and instead of asking, would you be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in your community, they asked this question. If we gave you the equivalent of six weeks' pay every year, would you be willing to have a nuclear waste dump in your community? So these people had two reasons to say yes. One reason was their responsibilities as, as citizens of Switzerland. The second reason was they were getting paid a very substantial amount of money in compensation for having the nuclear waste up. Surely two reasons are better than one, you would think. So guess what percentage of people said yes in this case, where they are both uh, discharging their responsibilities as citizens and on top of that getting six weeks pay? Instead of 50% of people saying yes, 25% said yes. 25%, half as many people said yes. Why? Well, we can't be completely certain about why, but the most likely explanation is this. When you offer people money to accept something like a nuclear waste dump, the offer of money is essentially telling people, listen, I want you to make this decision based on what you think is in your own best interest. Is it in your best interest to have a nuclear waste dump and six-week salary or not to have a nuclear waste dump? 
And the question of what your responsibilities are as a citizen is no longer on the table. And it turns out that the overwhelming majority of people think they'd be better off without six weeks pay and without a nuclear waste dump than with six weeks pay and with a nuclear waste dump. And so offering them an incentive to have a nuclear waste dump decreases the chances that they are willing to accept a nuclear waste dump in their community. And so the general point from both of these examples is that when you offer people incentives for doing the right thing, it undermines their commitment to do the right thing because it's the right thing. The reason to come on time in the daycare center is that it's the right thing to do. The reason to accept a nuclear waste dump in your community is because it's the right thing to do. When you offer incentives, you eliminate any notion that we all are responsible to do whatever the right thing is in a given situation. So the way this is sometimes discussed is that motives compete and instrumental motives, financial motives crowd out moral motives. They make moral motives less salient and less significant, which means that when it comes to using your judgment, you are less likely to use your judgment to serve the well-being of your client, your patient, your student. Instead, you will use your judgment to serve your interests, not theirs. So that's the lesson. That's the drawback to relying on incentives. And yet they are pervasive. There's an example taken from an elementary school in Texas. This is uh, in the era of big testing where schools are evaluated on the basis of how well kids do. And there's a woman named Ms. Dewey who happens to teach third grade in this Texas school district. The principal wants to get the test scores up and so do the teachers. Scores on these tests are pretty much taken as the metric for evaluating how well schools are doing under the Texas accountability system. Since 1992, her school has been doing okay, but only okay. The state says it's acceptable, but the administration and most of the teachers are anxious to achieve the more prestigious uh, evaluation of recognized rather than just acceptable. This requires that more than 80% of students pass these state tests. The system is data-driven, and the only data that ensures officially sanctioned success is scores on these standardized tests. All third grade students have to pass the reading test to move on to fourth grade, and the teachers regularly administer practice tests throughout the year with the goal, as I said, of getting 80% of students to pass the test. So Ms. Dewey, who's been teaching for 20 years, listens one day as a consultant hired by the district explains how to use the data from the practice tests. Using the data, says the consultant, you can identify and focus on the kids 
who are close to passing. She calls these kids the bubble kids. To make this concept very tangible to the teachers, the consultant passes out markers in three colors, green, yellow, and red. Now, take out your class's last benchmark scores and divide your students into three groups. Color the safe cases, the kids who will definitely pass green. Don't waste your time teaching them because they're already gonna pass. Look at the kids who have no chance of passing this year and the kids who don't count, kids with learning disabilities, and color these kids red. Because no matter what you do, these kids are not gonna pass the standardized test. Now you've got the third group, the ones who can pass with a little extra help. Color their names yellow. These are the kids you should be spending your time with. You should focus your attention on the yellow kids, the bubble kids. They'll give you the biggest return on your investment. Don't concentrate on the best, on the smartest kids uh, to enhance their education. Don't concentrate on the neediest kids, the ones who most you can most use your intervention. Concentrate on the kids who are on the bubble because those are the ones for whom a modest increase in performance will make the difference between an acceptable school and a recognized school. She was appalled a few years later. She was no longer working in the Texas school system. It's time for a quick break, but when we come back, how paying CEOs the big bucks isn't always the best decision for the company. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. 
That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. It is increasingly the case that the, especially at high levels in uh, financial enterprises, the majority of uh, compensation is paid in the form of bonuses rather than in the form of salary. Bonuses can be five or 10 times salary. And bonuses are computed on the basis of the performance of the individual and the performance of the company. And you will see in every year when uh, uh, financial publications publish the, you know, whatever hundred highest paid CEOs, you'll see that some CEO gets a salary of a mere uh, $1 million. I use mere sarcastically, of course, and a bonus of $11 million. Now, what determines the bonus is the behavior of the company stock. So if you are interested in maximizing your compensation, what you want to do is maximize the value of the company's stock. What maximizes the value of the company's stock in the short term may well not be what's in the best interest of the company in the long term, but you don't really care about the long term because by the time your company suffers from your foolish decisions, that raise the value of company stock in the short term, you'll be long gone. And so what this system does is push in the direction of incredibly short-term thinking because people are compensated on the basis of the company's short-term performance. And when this kind of a scheme for compensating high-level executives was introduced, people thought it was a miracle of financial engineering because now you know, leaders of companies only got paid a lot if the company did very well. They didn't have to worry about CEOs taking three hour, four martini lunches because how much they got paid depended on how well the company did, which in turn depended on how hard and how smart they worked. And what nobody realized is that what this was encouraging was extremely hard work to produce extremely short term gains often with a massive long-term price lying down the road. Nonetheless, again and again, this happens. Again and again, people fail to learn the lesson. The lesson they learn is not that financial incentives don't work. The lesson they learn is that dumb financial incentives don't work, but I'm going to create smart ones. And immediately, people find a way to game the system and turn the smart ones into dumb ones. And so think back to the bubble kids I talked about just a few minutes ago. 
there's an even better way to increase the chances that kids will pass these tests in uh, elementary school. Instead of giving them extra training, you can sneak into the office at night and change answers on the kids' exams. And this, of course, is what has happened in several different school districts around the country. The biggest scandal, I think, was in Georgia, but it wasn't only in Georgia. Teachers would come in and erase the, some wrong answers and replace them with right answers so that the kids' scores on these tests were higher than they would have been without cheating. You don't even have to go through the motions of teaching kids how to take the test. You can just change the test answers. In my own world, uh, academic uh, uh, higher education, we see the same thing happening. Uh, More and more universities and colleges feel that they have to take teaching undergraduates seriously. This may seem obvious to you if you're an outsider to higher education, but lots of institutions of higher education are all about nurturing research, reputations, and productivity. And the students pay the freight, but the faculty aren't there to teach the students. They're there to do their own research. Well, this has become increasingly unacceptable as I guess the price of going to college keeps going up. So more and more institutions are insisting that they are holding teachers accountable. Now, the question is, how do you evaluate whether a given college teacher is doing a good job or not? And the answer is you give students course evaluations to fill out. How much do you think you learned? How much did you enjoy the class? Would you take another class with this person? Blah, blah, blah. Those kinds of questions. Fine. Here's the problem. Over the last 15 years or so, a kind of understanding has developed between teachers and students. And the understanding goes like this. The student is saying, not in so many words, here's the deal, teacher. If you give high grades and you don't assign much work, I'll give you a high evaluation. And so since the teacher wants a high evaluation and the student wants a high grade and not too much work, this kind of deal is is struck without anyone explicitly talking about it, where the courses are less and less demanding and the grades are higher and higher and the course evaluations are higher and higher so that universities can claim that all of their students, all of their teachers are excellent at providing students with a high quality education. And so the measuring instrument that has developed for evaluating the quality of instruction has been successfully gamed by students and faculty alike so that whatever it measures, it is certainly not measuring the quality of instruction. And there's good evidence actually that higher course evaluations are correlated with less learning, not more. When you look at students who have had an introductory course with a popular teacher, students who've had an introductory course with a less popular teacher, and compare how they do in the next course in the sequence, the students who've had the course with a less popular teacher do better in the next course 
than the students who've had the course with a more popular teacher. So not only does the course evaluation fail to measure quality of teaching, there's some reason to think it is actually measuring the opposite of uh, quality of instruction. And so, again and again, we rely on incentives to get people's motives aligned with our goals, to make it so that what teachers want to do is what we want them to do, what doctors want to do is what we want them to do, and so on. But it never works, it never succeeds, uh, and it, it is a poor substitute for having teachers who want to excite and educate their students, for wanting doctors who want to cure disease and ease suffering, for, uh, for uh, having lawyers who want to see to it that justice is done. These incentives are a very poor substitute for people doing the right thing for the right reason. And of course, from Aristotle's point of view, to put not too fine a point on it, what it means to be a wise person, what it means to be a person of character is not simply that we do the right things, but that we do them for the right reasons. We do them because they are the right things, not because there's someone holding a gun to our heads and not because there's somebody dangling a carrot in front of our noses. We want to be excellent at what we do because excellence is the aim of our activities in work and also in our relations with other people. And so, to conclude, working to improve the way our educational, medical, legal, and financial systems operate, either by regulating them, giving them more rules, or by incentivizing them, will maybe prevent disasters, but it will not succeed in giving, getting us the excellence that we want. It'll move us further from the excellence we want by undermining people's motivation to do the right thing as financial advisors, as lawyers, as doctors, and as teachers. And there you have it. Incentives don't always encourage the right behavior. I hope you found today's talk useful. You know I did. Join us next time when Barry talks about how to find your calling. The Happiness Formula from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. humans. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 